Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. I'm here with Mina Fazel. Now, Mina gave a talk today which stood out um, because you mentioned quite a few things that haven't been mentioned by anybody else <laughs> um, in the audience or on the stage. Um, you spoke about school, mental health, you spoke about education, you spoke about family, you spoke a lot about um, kind of particular tractable problems, bullying, for example. Um, so first of all, I guess, why is this a really interesting area for you to work in? Like it's really interesting, I think, especially the adolescent years, because so many kind of unique things happen during adolescence. Uh, I spoke in the talk earlier about how adolescence is quite a unique phenomenon amongst the human species. Actually, no other species has this dramatic growth spurt, um, which is a physical thing, but actually it's also, we know... Um, a dramatic period of time of change in young people's sense of self, identity, understanding their moral purpose. Um, and also, you know, they have to undertake this really complicated task, which is at the end of it to become an individual, mm -hmm. or what we call individuation. Mm -hmm. So in this adolescent period also seems to correlate really closely with the emergence of mental health problems. So we see that the vast majority of lifelong mental illness starts in the adolescent years. So it's very closely aligned with puberty. So it's more prominent in girls who usually start the pubertal growth phase earlier. And as we see now in society, there are a lot of changes taking place in quite a dramatic way that are disproportionately affecting adolescents, I think. So uh, there's some um, data to show that the age of puberty is getting earlier. So you're actually exposing the brain of these developing children earlier to a lot of these stressors. Um, the advent of social media, and there are a lot of positive things about social media, but actually there's some complicated things, uh, most overtly around cyberbullying, but also just about how um, beauty and perfection and happiness are portrayed and how that then impacts on a young person's self-perception, also about kind of their identity and their social context and you know what people are doing and what it means to be happy and social but all these really complicated things are kind of bombarding children in a way that wasn't happening before we've also got kind of austerity and the kind of impact of that since 2007-2008 the societal impacts of that and most acutely on family life so greater numbers of family discord parental separation, exposure to um, stressors within the family context. And so all of that combined, I think, makes adolescence just a really, really interesting, important stage to understand and to study. And we can't do it and can't study it in isolation. We have to think about the family. We have to think about the school and the peer context and the educational context and all these things. And I, and I think interventions have to be thinking about that as well. And you used the word youthquake yes. in your talk. So yeah. A quarter of the people on the planet are under the age of 18, yeah, is that right? Yeah, so it's kind of, that was the 2017 word of the year, apparently, youthquake. And so we've got, the it's a massive proportion of young people in the world. The vast majority of them are in low, middle-income countries as well. So so this youthquake is going to hit, you know, society. They're, they're going to become parents within the next 10 years. You know, this is... Going to, you know, making sure that we get it right, that the right supports are in place, that, you know, that we ensure that these young people are developing so that they can, you know, contribute to the social and economic capital of societies through work and through their families and through relationships has to be a major priority. And yet, there's a complicated group to grapple with. You know, the research isn't being done well. There are all these difficulties around consent. 
Um, there are all these difficulties around where a child's right begins and a parent's right ends. And I think a lot of these difficulties then impact on our kind of bigger ability to study the area, which is actually why I want to go into consent, although no one wants to fund me. But, you know, I really think from a research point of view and from a clinical point of view, this seems to be at the crux of a lot of what we grapple with. And in the last, I don't know, three to five years, we have seen a really positive... Um, explosion and interest about youth mental health yeah. you know there's a lot of you know dangerous stories uh, about as you say about social media in the press but we've certainly seen increased research funding and we've seen a lot of talk about improving services and a lot of talk particularly about services kind of coming together and, and mental health expertise going into schools yeah. so tell us about what's happening on that front well I think it's an incredibly exciting time like, there's a lot of interest in what can we do to help young people not have mental health problems because schools are, are saying we don't, you know, we don't know what's happening with the young people. They seem more anxious and more distressed than they've ever seen before. Parents are saying we don't know how to manage or best support young people. And actually mental health services are also seeing quite a dramatic increase in the numbers of young people presenting. So the Oxford data that we've been scrutinising over the last four years have shown a 50% increase in numbers of young people being referred to services so that's dramatic because we haven't had a 50 percent increase in capacity of the staff so i think there are a number of reasons for that one is actually it's just becoming more socially acceptable to seek mental health care so a lot of young people who weren't accessing care are now um, and so this is kind of putting a lot of emphasis in this area how can we best help and there's a lot of evidence on how best to treat mental illness and there's some evidence about how to promote general well-being. But we don't really know how to prevent serious mental illness. So we don't really know if we've got a group of 50 kids that we think might be at slightly increased risk of developing a depressive illness, how to actually prevent that happening. And so I think that a lot of the initiatives that are taking place right now, there's a government green paper putting mental, kind of a mental health workforce into schools where there are kind of new education kind of mental health practitioners being trained up coming in. Their schools are being asked to identify mental health leads within each school. That actually there's a quite an energy and quite an interesting, important focus in trying to understand what can be done. Because the answer to every problem cannot be individual therapy with a mental health professional. We have to be thinking a little bit more broadly about the range of ways that we can support young people to become resilient and to have health. And whether that is through a whole range of extracurricular activities, whether that's through supporting families and positive parenting strategies, whether that's in finding ways to support those that are kind of having serious physical health problems, which we know is a very high risk factor, whether that's actually being incredibly clear and strict around anti-bullying campaigns, all of these, I would hypothesize, are likely to have a positive impact. And so right now, the space is enabling a lot of kind of innovations, but we're not going to learn from this opportunity unless we properly evaluate it. So I do think there's a real need to do good research. I've published a few blogs over the last couple of years, as you know, but people like Tamsin Ford and Pookie Knightsmith and Lucinda Powell talking about school-based mental health services and what works. And, and I think they all agree on, or kind of one of the concluding points that comes out of their, their blogs is, this is all well and good, but asking teachers to do this on top of everything else, you know, these are people that are probably mentally ill themselves. <laughs> so how is that going to work? 
So I, I think we have to look upon teachers as the most important resource we have in the kind of raising of our children outside of the family because kids spend so much time at school. So I think that there shouldn't be an assumption that it's teachers that deliver mm -hmm. this. But there has to be some acknowledgement that teachers need to have an opportunity to learn a little bit more about mental health and mental illness in particular. And you know, very few PGC courses are so tight and are so pressured that very few have anything but a kind of cursory mention of mental illness. So the first step has to be that we, you know, I think do away with the PGC and make it a two-year program and actually, you know, give teachers everything they need to, to do this really important task and to make mental illness and mental kind of how to support mental health and behavioral management strategies a massive component of their work because whether they like it or not, they are the ones that are usually identifying and noticing the psychological changes in the young people in their classrooms. And, you know, it might not be that they need to be addressing it and treating it, but they need to be able to identify it. And once they're worried about a kid, to know what to do about it. But if you feel unsupported, you feel that CAM services are unavailable, you're actually probably not going to approach that young person because you don't know what you're going to do with them if they present. So I think teachers are a crucial component of a system of care. But the teachers need to be armed with the information they need, which is a little bit more opportunity to learn. Because most of them would, would value that. And that's our experience, because we've brought mental health practitioners into all our secondary schools in Oxfordshire for half a day a week to work with teachers, to kind of talk early with them about... Um, any problems they're identifying in their students. Because what happens in schools is they're worried about a kid. They think that mental health services are unavailable, the waiting list is too long, so they hold on to that young child for as long as they can until things sometimes reach a crisis point, and then they refer to mental health services. So we want to kind of change that perception and get discussions very early so that if a young person actually is showing signs where actually we want to intervene really quickly in mental health services, we can do that. But actually, if there are other ways that this child can be supported, then that can also be facilitated and discussed. So I think teachers need to be supported. We need to work as one system together. But you know, there's nothing to say why we can't bring a whole new tranche of workers in. And this is what the Green Paper is doing. Mm. So it's not that teachers should do it, but that the location of the school has to be acknowledged as a really important location. I've got £10 million. Pounds. I want to spend it on school-based mental health research. What do I spend it on? Uh, well, I think a big part of that should be on good, robust research into different types of interventions with a real implementation science approach, preferably to me. But, you know, um, I think because there's no absence of interventions that have been tried in schools. You, know, you name it, it's been tried but it hasn't been properly evaluated. So what we've lost is the learning from all these kind of good studies that you'd say have good face validity. Like it makes a lot of sense, it seems that the young people like it, but then they don't kind of, they're not rolled out or they're not scalable or all these important questions around implementation science, which facilitates kind of the early adoption of good practice and good evidence into services hasn't been incorporated. So, you know, in the United States, they have a, a federally funded, well, federally supported Center for School-Based Mental Health at the University of Maryland. So, you know, schools can utilize the center for, to learn. you know, so if you're a school right now and you want to do a mental health program, you don't know what to do. So, you, you know, you're, you're, you know, you're stuck and you just, you know, but this is, so I think I would also spend it on finding a proper support system to enable schools that are grappling with these problems to actually be able to access the evidence base 
in a way that's accessible to know what to do. Thank you.